that earlier song we sang, Be Merciful to Me. The first line was, out of the depth, or out of the deep I call, right? Is that what it was? What's the next line? To you, O Lord, be merciful to me. That really fits well with this psalm. Can you imagine Jesus crying out to God, be merciful to me? Would that be something he would do? I saw on Facebook this morning a post from Adam Jensen. I don't know how he got on my Facebook. But there he was. It wasn't him, it was a photograph. Maybe some of you saw it. A photograph of a set of stairs, sun coming up through the icy mist in Fergus Falls, 31 below zero. I wish I had been there, <laughs> but well, here I am. The last time Randy and I were here was for uh, Dag and Dave Christensen's 60th wedding anniversary out there in the foyer. I peeked in here, but I didn't come in. This is beautiful. There's an intriguing scene from Jesus' ministry as his story is told in Matthew's Gospel and in Mark's, where Jesus discusses with the disciples James and John and their mother about who will be chosen once Jesus finally becomes king, chosen to sit in the two main places of power and honor one on the right hand and one on the left hand of Jesus' throne. Jesus informs them, however, that, hey, sorry, he's not the one who makes that decision. But what he does know is that the privilege of someday sitting on thrones to the right hand and the left hand of him when he sits on his own royal throne in his kingdom, that is a privilege reserved, and get this, reserved for those for whom it has been prepared by his father. Now that's cryptic. Who is it? That's all he says, no more, and if we who read this story already don't know who those lucky two future throne sitters are. We immediately want to know. We want to find out. It's a mystery. And Matthew intends it that way. But guess what? Both Matthew and Mark are eventually kind enough to identify those two lucky dudes for us. They are the so-called two thieves. 
the two renegade ISIS operatives crucified with Jesus on Golgotha. For most of us, that's shocking enough, worth a sermon in its own right. But if we stop to think about it, we see that the ironic thing, the really shocking thing, is that the crucifixion of Jesus, his being killed like a criminal, is in fact his royal coronation as king. That's his coronation day. Talk about irony. By voluntarily dying, Jesus becomes the supreme ruler of the world. That's how the Gospels tell it. And they do indeed tell it with great irony. It would be almost funny, really, if it weren't so ghastly. The Gospels tell us that Jesus is crowned king with thorns, robed in royal purple for a joke, given a cattail reed for a royal scepter. The raunchy Roman soldiers bow down to him, laughingly hailing him as king, and Pontius Pilate posts a placard on Jesus' cross proclaiming him king of the Jews. John's gospel adds that the chief priests wanted the placard to say only that Jesus claimed to be king of the Jews, but no, Pilate says, what I have written, I have written. That's also what John is saying. It's also what Matthew, Mark, and Luke say. This amazingly is how God makes Jesus King of Kings. There are numerous other ways in which the Gospels convey to us that Jesus becomes the cosmic ruler by being killed on a cross. We don't normally realize it, but when Jesus is referred to as the Son of God, it's a reference to his being God's chosen King. It's not a reference to his divinity. This too is worth a sermon in its own right, and I have one if you ever want to hear it. But for now, what I want us to see is that Jesus not only becomes king through suffering and dying, but that he also rules as king through suffering with and through dying for those he rules over namely his entire creation, and not just human souls. He rules over everything. By suffering, he both becomes and rules as King of kings and Lord of lords, ruler of all the earth. That way of ruling is why for now, it still may not look very much like he's in charge of the world. 
or even in charge of the church, for that matter. Not at least according to the way we ourselves think of being in charge. In God's way of doing things, those who are in charge suffer with and for those they are in charge of. The last shall be first, and the first shall be last, as Jesus told his followers. And Jesus is indeed in charge, even now, in spite of how it may look. One day, one promised day, he will return to bring all of creation to its knees before him. But meanwhile, he rules through his own suffering and through the suffering of his followers, us. When his followers endure as he endured, faithfully confessing him as their king, rather than to sell out and capitulate under the pressure to act like everyone else does, then through those followers, Jesus is ruling still. And this brings us to Psalm 22. When Jesus enters the final moments of his life, hanging on the cross, stretched apart beyond endurance, Matthew and Mark tell us that he cries out, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? We don't always catch the significance of statements like this in the Bible. We quite naturally want to hang them with magnets to our refrigerators or tattoo them on our arms, to apply them like little isolated nuggets directly to our own lives, and we should if we can. That works. But in the process, we may miss what the actual authors of these texts wanted us to hear in them. In the case of the story of Jesus' crucifixion, as he cries out, feeling abandoned, he is in fact quoting those opening words from Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, that's interesting, perhaps, but we might ask, so what? The so what is this. Whenever a New Testament passage like this one quotes from or even merely alludes to an Old Testament passage, it's not just those few selected words that are important, like a little nugget snatched but also the entire Old Testament passage from which those words were taken. So when Matthew and Mark report Jesus' dying quotation from the very first words of Psalm 22, they are telling us that the message of that entire psalm is important here. As Jesus dies, he has on his mind 
what the entirety of Psalm 22 is about. It's worth reading straight through that psalm with the thought in mind of Jesus himself praying through it, perhaps in Gethsemane, as the disciples slept. But then this means that if we'd like to understand more fully what the crucifixion of Jesus means, and of course not everyone does, but if we do, then we will need to understand Psalm 22 as well. We rightly see Jesus' death on the cross as the way in which he sets us free from sin and sin's effects. As we say, Jesus died on the cross so that our sins might be forgiven. And that's true. Yet that's only part of the story. Psalm 22 helps us to see the bigger picture, one we seldom think about. It helps us to see that the crucifixion, that horrible event, the crucifixion is how Jesus becomes king of the universe. And not only that, it's also how Jesus rules as king of the universe. By including these words in their story of Jesus' death, which they could just as well have left out the way John and Luke do, but by including them, Matthew and Mark want us to grasp what it means for Jesus to be the king of creation. We didn't read through the entire psalm this morning. I encourage you to do so later today, or at least before you go to bed this evening. I recently went through it with a fine-tooth pencil and picked out the ways in which it refers to the author's suffering. And I found 19 references to his various troubles in Psalm 22. Here they are. You can check it out later. I encourage you to do it. It's eye-opening. But here they are. <coughs> the psalmist speaks of being abandoned by God. And far from him, he speaks of restlessness and shame. He's been scorned, despised, and mocked. He's known trouble, and he feels surrounded by raging bulls and ravenous lions. He's consumed by the fear of death. He must endure staring and gloating from his enemies. They rob him and threaten him, attacking him with the sword and violence. He's afflicted and left in poverty. Kind of like Adam Jensen and Fergus Falls. Yet in the midst of all of this, he faithfully confesses that God is holy that God is enthroned as a king on the praises of his people. All the families of the nations of the earth shall bow down before him as king, because world dominion, the right 
to be the world's supreme ruler belongs to the Lord God. He reigns over all of humanity, over all of creation. And so the psalmist, David, even in the midst of his 19-point suffering, faithfully declares his confidence in God's ability and intention to deliver him from all that misery. Out of the deep, I cry, be merciful to me. And he will do this someday, anyway. He may not see deliverance just yet, but he proclaims his assured belief that it is truly coming. To the Lord indeed, he says, to the Lord indeed shall all who sleep in the earth bow down. Before him shall bow down all who go down to dust, and I shall live for him. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord and proclaim his deliverance to a people yet unborn saying that he has done it. God exerts his rule over the world when this person, the author of Psalm 22, refuses to give up on God when he insists on remaining faithful to God even though it hurts. But who is this person? And here's the surprise. If we take the scripture seriously, and we should, we have to see that when Jesus cries out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? He puts himself in the role of the author of Psalm 22. He applies it to himself. Like the original psalmist, King David, Jesus too suffers even as he steadfastly maintains his faith in his Father. That despairing cry of feeling deserted is a gut reaction to his horrific experience, his horrific circumstance, not an expression of his collapsed faith, and yet from the way Matthew and Mark tell the story of Jesus, we have seen by this point in that whole story that Jesus is already king, just like his forefather David, only more so. That is, he's both king of kings and lord of lords, like the Lord God in Psalm 22 enthroned as a king on the praises of his people. And he is also simultaneously adopting the role of the suffering psalmist. King on the one hand, suffering psalmist on the other. For now, in this rebellious and wicked world where we who follow Jesus live out our lives, our suffering, together with the suffering of humanity, is how this king rules on earth through us. Not the sort of ruler we are more used to experiencing, especially today. 
What we could also notice, though, is that even as king, this ruler of the universe, right there in the process of ruling through suffering, cries out in agony to his father. Oh, my God, say both the psalmist and Jesus the king. I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night I find no rest. Yet, yet, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of your people. In you, our ancestors trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. That's a confession of faith in the midst of feeling abandoned. Jesus, the king in human form, willingly enthroned on his cross, cries out from the cross in pain and human despair, but he also cries out in faithful expectation that in spite of it all, God the Father will deliver him from his suffering in God's own good time. And this is how Jesus rules the world. Way back in that earlier scene where James and John and their mom try to maneuver for the top seats in Jesus' new regime, Jesus told them that it would be a different sort of regime from the one from the ones that they were familiar with. Unlike the usual sort, like, like the Roman Empire or King Herod's administration or some modern dictatorship, corrupt government or global corporation where rulers act like ruthless tyrants, in contrast to that, God's kingdom puts the little people first and makes everyone a slave of everyone else. It's not about being served, he tells them, but about being a servant. It's not about chasing after our own well-being, but about putting the well-being of other people ahead of our own, which is how St. Paul puts it in his letter to the Philippians. And this is the kind of king Jesus is. It's also the kind of people he calls his followers to be. Then Jesus told his disciples, says Matthew, if any of you want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross, like I'm taking up mine, And do what I do, follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who want to lose, who lose their life for my sake, will find it. This can be daunting, if not downright terrifying. It certainly startled and terrified Peter and the other disciples. There's much more to say about this. We can talk about it sometime. 
and look at another side of it. But for now, as we bring this to a close, there are three things to take into consideration. First, Jesus does not simply send his followers into the midst of troubles and grief while he himself heads off to heaven to sit by the pool and sip margaritas and play video games. Now he goes with us in it all the way, even to the end of the age. Second, at that end of the age, he returns in visible form to undo all the damage that humanity has done to God's creation and to establish true justice and eternal peace in and throughout all aspects of life on earth and thereafter to live here with us visibly forever. And third, in the meantime, whenever any of us like Jesus find ourselves suffering beyond endurance, and perhaps some of you have been in a situation like that, whenever that happens, we too, like Jesus, are invited to follow him in crying out, my God, my God, why, why, why? Why are you letting this happen to me? And we may be assured that Jesus himself in the spirit cries out on our behalf, simultaneously whispering to us that we are his that no one and no trouble can ever take us out of God's hand and that in due time he will make all things right. We are not forgotten ever. And the way we endure is what assures the rest of the world that there already is a true and faithful king upon the earth. Father, bless these words to your people's glory and future and mission. We pray in Jesus' name.